brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome to Shy Talk an Irish history podcast. My name's Kevin Lurney, and here in the studio with me today is... I can't lie to them. I can't. I'm not. We're in separate locations. They they, they know as well. Neither of which is a studio. Yeah, neither. Like, well, no, no, don't, that's not fair. I actually am in a studio. I'm in my production studio. Well, that's... You're, you? you're in your house. I'm in my workplace, in my office, in an actual full-fledged production studio. Agree to disagree. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, although I feel like you can't really tell too much of a difference anymore because thanks to the listeners, we've got Kevin a good microphone. Yes. And I, I uh, built this sound booth around me, which I don't know. I think it does actually do something. Oh, I think, yeah, no, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, while I'm sure. eating that pudding, I'm listening to this podcast and I can tell that the quality of the audio has gone up significantly. Having said that, we should give a shout out to all the people who helped buy that microphone at shitetalkhistorybuymeacoffee.com. Yes, last week I said something like, if you really don't like the podcast, send us some angry fibers just to really stick it to us. You know, as a joke. And then as soon as uh, as soon as the episode went up, we got two fibers. And... By the same person. Um, he really yes, hates it. that's right. The same person gave us two fibers instead of a tenor, which really felt like it was <laughs> a pointed attack. Yeah, no, because I, I saw that come in as a donation. I was like, this is weird. Maybe he just figured it out. And then I listened to the podcast back and I heard your intro because I wasn't around. I was like, yeah. this guy, this guy is spot on. This guy is on the ball. I like to think that it was a coincidence and he hadn't even heard this episode yet. No, that uh, Owen was, uh, he, he had definitely heard. I shouldn't give out his name for its G- GDPR purpose. Okay, I'll, I've already given it. Cats out of the bag. Owen M. Uh, yeah, gave some. That's, that's, that's a bit obvious though. So, okay. Um. E. Mangan. Yeah, that's <laughs> that'll do. Is is that our first listener shout out? Oh, is it? Yeah, I do, or by it, name, maybe. Yeah, we've we've broken. We've. <laughs> I feel like I've broken my oath as a journalist, but uh, too late now. Who uh, the fir- the first person to send us a fiver after this episode goes out, we'll uh, we'll breach your privacy as well. Um, <laughs> you can pick either your first name or last name, and we'll read it out. Um, but Jason, I reckon that uh. You know, me and you were two young, hip, tech-savvy gentlemen with our finger on the pulse of a generation. We've uh, decided to set up a Facebook account 
in the year 2020. Hot damn, it's going to go it's going to live right there on the internet's right beside our MySpace and Bebo page. If you if you're not a fan of paying for content, maybe you could download our podcast through Napster. Uh, there's, there's a multitude of ways to find this. Yeah, we're <laughs> I'm going to start uploading episodes to LimeWire now. XXX Shite Talk Rasta Remix Bob Marley XXX Virus. <laughs> LimeWire. Remember you used to be able to download LimeWire Pro from LimeWire? <laughs> That's the internet eating itself. But um, yeah, so we've got a, a Facebook page at Shy Talk History. There's nothing there as of yet, but uh, soon soon there will be. Yeah, give, it a, give it a like and we'll start to put more content there. There'll soon to be a Twitter page and we'll be on all of the social medias, but never Snapchat or TikTok. I think they're, they're gone now. I, I think they're going to get more popular, but I'm drawing the line in the sand right there. We will do Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and that's it. Famously, lines in the sand are eroded quite quickly, so... Lines in I'll the body in... sand. <laughs> I'll see you in TikTok in uh, 2021. But I think, is that, is that all of our housekeeping? You can follow us at Shite Talk History anywhere you want it now, or you can email us at Shite Talk History, well, sorry, Shite Talk History at gmail.com. Yeah, so... I'm conscious we made a big deal last week of this being the last episode in the series on the War of the Two Kings. But then we recorded this one and it was about four and a half hours, so we've had to split it into two episodes. Which means that next week will be the final episode, and it will be the final episode this time because it's already recorded. And that'll be about the Battle of Ogrim. But for this week's episode, we've got part five on the twelfth series, all about... Patrick Sarsfield and the Siege of Limerick. Each of these episodes has kind of been standalone because we've done a, a recap at the start of each one about the other episodes. But uh, you're going to like this, I think. I've deployed a literary device. I'm going to do a recap through... A character who we haven't introduced yet, Ooh. but will be a main player in this episode. I like this. It's pretty good. It's actually convenient because I wanted to bring him into this. And I was like, oh, he's actually been involved in every event thus far. But uh, here we go, Jason. Here's the story of Patrick Sarsfield. Okay. I imagine he's part of the Sarsfield clan that has the links to the uh, the soccer team Vela Sarsfield in Argentina. He would have been oh. part of that, I believe. Or one of his ancestors would have been. Probably, but uh, so Patrick Sarsfield was from a wealthy Roman Catholic family of English descent. His great-great-grandfather had been knighted for, well, it's unclear why, but apparently he was helping the crown against rebellious gales, and uh, he used that money that he got from the crown to Sorry, buy... that sounded like rebellious gays. Oh, <laughs> those rowdy, rambunctious gays, always at it. It was the 1540s and the, the gays figured it was their, their turn in the sun. Um, no, he was uh, he was uh, fighting against rebellious rebellious gales, rebellious Irishmen. Um, and he used the money that he took from the crown to buy Lucan estate and then also some other estate in Kildare. Uh, so then his grandson, Patrick Sarsfield's father, who's also called Patrick Sarsfield, he took a different approach and he sided with Charles I against Cromwell and the British Parliament during the Confederate Wars, which I guess is not that different. He just sided with a different British king. Uh, But that resulted in the family lands being taken away from them when the Royalists lost 
and uh, Charles went into exile. After the wars were over and the Stuarts got back in the monarchy, the Sarsfield family wasn't able to claim back all their land because of the part in the wars. But uh, his eldest son, William, so our Patrick Sarsfield's brother, he married Mary Crofts, who was supposedly Charles II's illegitimate daughter because uh, her mother was Charles's main mistress, Lucy Walter, who had like four children. It The royal lineage is very difficult to follow, but they all had it's, like... It's, it really isn't. It starts with one family tree and then you never have to leave that family tree. <laughs> it just becomes a family circle at some point. Yeah. But So I think she wasn't acknowledged, Mary Crofts, but she was probably his illegitimate daughter. So that came with certain... Uh, certain perks, which meant that the Sarsfield family got their land back. They got the land back on the condition that whoever was living there, once they died, they would return back to the Sarsfield clan. Okay. In the 1670s, with the secret treaty of Dover that we talked about, Charles II the not agreed so secret, to support... The not-so-secret treaty of Dover. No, not-so-secret, because it's on Wikipedia. I mean, that's like, you know, rule one of espionage. Don't publish your things on the internet. But, uh... Charles II agreed to support France in an attack on the Dutch Republic. He made a deal with Louis of France to double-team the Dutch Republic. And in 1672, Sarsfield fought over there on the French side against the Dutch and against a young William of Orange. Was that a... a was he just Billy of Orange then? He was. He was Billy of Tan- Rhine. Billy of Tangerine. He hadn't yeah. quite <laughs> ascended yet. Um, he was a... Uh, he was only a young a young seed. Um. So when, when Sarsfield returned to London after the wars, he was caught up in the Popish plot by Titus Oates, who, <laughs> yeah, I think today it still is the best name in this whole saga. But, uh, <laughs> the best name ever. That is true. And, and his co-conspirator, Israel Tongue, who I don't see mentioned as often, but another fantastic name. Now t- tell me this. Hmm. What, what do you think uh, happened to Israel Tongue's tongue that made him think... Like, what I need to do is stay so close to the obvious here. Like, that man has a wooden tongue or something's gone on. And he's like, if I make my name, like, that would be like saying, my name is Devon, Italy, not a traitor. (laughs) 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 I I see what you've done here, Mr. Wooden Tongue, Israel Tongue. Israel Tongue. We'll have no more questions about my partner's tongue. It is, as he said, Israel Tongue. I'd like... (laughs) The whole way during the Popish plot, he just kept sliding a piece of paper across the desk to Titus Oates. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk whatever said, I want. Mention, mention the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as already mentioned, my partner's tongue is real. <laughs> yes, I mentioned the tongue. It was all we talked about in day 12. We really needed to get back to this Catholic witch hunt. Remember, you kept waving your arms around and saying, so in closure tongue is real oats are tight catholics bad thank you very much um so so charles oh yeah so so sarsfield oats named sarsfield as another one of the like catholic conspirators which meant there was a target on his back and then once the test laws were introduced by charles Sarsfield and all other Catholics were barred from entering the military, which means that he now lost his main way of making money, slash his only way of making money. So now he was broke and had nothing to do. He 
spent a little bit of time trying to get... So the Lucan estates had passed to his brother, and his brother had died, and they passed to his brother's sons. So he spent some time, I think, trying to sue them to get ownership of the estate, because why not? Because why not? But then after that fails, he goes back to London in 1681, and he makes two separate attempts to abduct a heiress. Uh... And now that I'm reading that, I don't actually know if it was two different heiresses or one heiress twice. No, it was it was no, it was one heiress and then one it was one uh, woman called Grace. Sure. Well, listen, at this stage we're just splitting heiresses. Well, he needed some heiresses and graces about him. <laughs> well, it seems like he might have had some heiresses and graces about him. He came back from war and his immediate like his his two first acts as a man with no money. I mean, we've we've been in a situation where the money dries up. He had to find a new line of work. His immediate reaction was to go home and try and steal his family plot of his nephews. And then when that failed, he went over to London and tried to kidnap a woman. Um, or possibly two women. Who hasn't? And listen, he who hasn't sinned cast the first stone, you know. But uh, it all turned around for him when Charles II died and was succeeded by James II in 1685. Sarsfield helped James suppress the Mount Rebellion and... Uh, that was one of the rebellions we talked about before, where because James was openly Catholic, as soon as he was put in charge, there was different Protestant factions who wanted to find a new king, uh, any king. And one in particular had picked one of Charles II's illegitimate Protestant sons called uh, James Scott. The Gendry. He was the Gendry, yes. And I think he was the Earl of Monmouth or whatever. So they all rallied around him and tried to get him on the throne. When... When people rally behind a bastard, then do you become a legitimate bastard? <laughs> I think you do. You become a legitimate bastard then after that. Um, but Sarsfield helped James put down this Monmouth rebellion and he was back in the game. James tried to remove the Test and Penal Laws Acts and he was looking for a couple of, a couple of good young Catholics to put into the army. So Sarsfield got a leg up. And in 1688, he had his own cavalry unit which is apparently pretty good. So later on that same year... I thought, I thought you were going to say, which is apparently a group of horses. <laughs> I haven't looked into it, but I think that's what that is. So later on that year in 1688, the, the Immortal Seven had written their letter to William, asking him to come over and get rid of James for being a Catholic. James knew about this in advance, so he sent Sarsfield over to Ireland, where our old friend Fighting Dick Talbot was now the Lord Lieutenant. Uh, he sent Sarsfield over to Dick to ask him for for more men to fight against William, and uh, Talbot said, "No, we need we need the men here." Yeah, which I mean, it is it is it is reasonable. I so as this story comes on, this will become a sort of a theme. But Sarsfield and Talbot didn't get on; they were both in exile with James and the Stuarts <sighs> when they went into exile. Bastards! You do love exile. So they, they, but these are all like they're all part of a gang. There's like the exile gang who all just hung out in the French court with the Stuarts. And uh, now that James and Charles are back in Paris, they're all getting dividends. But um, Sarsfield fails anyway and heads back to James empty-handed. Uh, so he couldn't get any more men. And by November, William has landed in England and uh, he's challenging James II for the throne. Sarsfield took command of the British forces in. The Winkington Skirmish, <laughs> which, as well as being probably one of the most British things I've ever read, was one of two actual conflicts in William's invasion that produced casualties. 
a total of around 18 people. The Winkington skirmish was not as tough as it sounded. They're the numbers I like hearing. Yeah. Giant battle. 4,000 injured, 20 dead. Despite such resounding victories, James ends up losing the entire battle because pretty much everyone on his side just defected to William's side as soon as he landed. So James flees to France in December. In January of the following year, 1689, Sarsfield follows him into exile in France. This whole event was known as the Glorious Revolution. Also, I think, yeah, sometimes called the Bloodless Revolution because... No one Which died. is very disrespectful to those 18 to 30 men who died in the entirety of an invasion of a different force. You, don't know, you don't know that blood was shed. They could, they could have all died That's from fair. natural That's causes. Fair. It could have been shock. <laughs> it could have been... Old age just so happened to be the day of the battle. Oh, I'm not uh, gone, croat. No one knows when the Grim Reaper will strike. It could be uh, while you're out shopping for oranges, or it could be on the morning of a battle where nothing would have happened. Actually, no, he did die, but it wasn't the decapitation that killed him. He actually had a heart attack directly before the Axeman swung. There was a a bad batch of shrimp going around then. You know what they say, never trust Winkington shrimp. Um, I think he would have survived the shotgun to the head, only the uh, the sound it produced gave him such a shock. You know, Johnny's heart wasn't in a good way, and no. it just, for the life of him, sure, that's the life gone. <laughs> that was the life of him. So, now Sarsfield is in exile with James, and at the age of 34, he decides, enough of this bachelor life, uh, it's time to get married. So he found a 15-year-old child called Honora Burke. And uh, they got hitched. That's not relevant to the story, but I think but as this story gets on, the fact that these like middle-aged men were admiring 15-year-old girls, it's certainly become a trend. Yeah. Did, did, he, did he marry them or did he, was he just on a plane with them traveling to an island 15 times with the girl? Like, this is, this is how they're going to try and pull the Clintons down, Kevin. <laughs> just because someone, these are just connections you're making in your crazy head, Kevin. Yeah, that is fair. That is right. fair. So uh, re- renege what you said. We don't really know what happened. Maybe Sarsfield, he married a 15-year-old girl. We don't know all the details. Sure, she was a child, but... But she grew up in Eastern Europe, and they're emotionally a lot more developed than a regular 15-year-old from Ireland or England. They have to, sure, they have to drown puppies when they're nine because they can't afford to keep the litter. That's like, it's a it's a thing. They're, they're hardened individuals. It's all part of the tradition. I know it, you know it. It's just basic... Basic mads. What's this? The seven year plus one, and then you add on another ten for every century that's gone by. <laughs> seven years plus one, and then they're probably that they're of age. I think that's, I think that's the the Clinton. <laughs> you know the old rule, yeah. Seven seven years plus one is eight, and that's good to go. <laughs> yeah. Um. So in in March of sixteen eighty nine. Sarsfield returned to Ireland with James and a host of French troops when they landed at Cork to retake the throne. Sarsfield was elected to Dublin County in the Patriot Parliament of that May and he ended up commanding cavalry units across Ulster during the War of the Two Kings. Not successfully, but uh, he did command them. When an Irish contingent was to be sent to France in October of that year, Devaux, who was, remember, he was like the count, the French count who was there counselling James in Ireland. Mm-hmm. He was like Louis' man on the ground. And when there was an Irish contingent to be sent to France in October of that year, 
DeVoe suggested Sarsfield for the command. He said that, Although Sarsfield is not of noble belt, he has distinguished himself by his ability and his reputation in this kingdom is greater than that of any man I know. He is brave, but above all, he has a sense of honor and integrity in all that he does. You so Was that flawless? You, it's a flawless French-Canadian accent. <laughs> I am from Montreal. Where is my poutine? Gaston. <laughs> it's Afarati fight fans. Kevin's is doing his best uh, George St. Pierre. It's brilliant. I love it. There. Well, thank you. So the cliff notes from that are... Uh, DeVoe thinks that Sarsfield is a man of honor, integrity, and courage, and puts him forward to lead this battalion into France. James says no, because although James agrees that Sarsfield is brave, he also said that he was very scantily supplied with brains. Hmm. That's that's the first time I've ever heard that insult. Yes. It's great when you're able to talk that uh, cogently and flowery, but also most of the time people don't want to hear it. That's kind of like... Someone intelligent would say, do you see that guy over there? He he rides around on the crest of a wave of his own self-importance. I'd be more likely to say, see that lad over there? He's a thick shite. <laughs> well, this was before you could... You couldn't just come out and say he was a thick shite. You had to say he was very... Uh, one finds that, uh, although undoubtedly brave, Southfield is very scantily supplied with brains. I can't bring in that flowery language. Yeah. I gotta just slip back to base. Uh... So Sarsfield didn't get the job. He ended up staying on in Ireland. He didn't have much to do in the Battle of the Boyne. But when the Jacobites lost that battle and James fled back to France, Sarsfield stepped up and took a more central role in the Jacobite forces. And there you go. That's brought us up to... Let's cover the last four episodes of this. Ah, fair play to the listeners. (laughs) Do Do you remember any of this stuff? Like, yes, but like, there's a lot... Well, there, well, I mean, listen, Sarsfield lived through it all. But uh, so we're up to the end of the Battle of the Boyne. The defeat of the Battle of the Boyne had broken James's spirit, even though not that many people had died. He was done with it. So he fled the country thinking that the war was over. I had only accounted for 10 deaths. No. Yeah. <laughs> I only thought I'd have to count up on two hands. Once it went into the feet, I was, it was done. When it went into the feet, it was defeat. I already have gout. I'm already down to only 18. I can't get no more. No more. Retreat. If we lose any more, we'll never be able to keep track. <laughs> Fetch me that abacus. Um, yeah, so the, despite the relatively low casualty numbers, I think we'd said last week like 2,000 people died in a 40,000 people battle. So I think 1,500 of them were Jacobites. James calls it a day. He heads back to France. And around four weeks after the Battle of the Boyne, King William flaunts into Dublin unopposed and the rest of the Jacobite forces flee west across the Shannon. So the remaining Jacobites are split into two camps. There was the Peace Party who wanted to negotiate a deal with William at this stage. They thought that they could get some of the Catholic lands back. They thought they could get Catholics in some positions of authority and that was headed up by Dick Talbot. So old fighting Dick, he's ready to put down his fists. The peace party, led by a man yeah. whose nickname <laughs> his name begins with fighting. His nickname was Fighting Lion Dick Talbot, uh, <laughs> and that man's heading up the negotiate party. <laughs> so hey, look, I think to be fair, Kev, the heads of the actual peace process probably didn't have uh, completely dry hands themselves. Fair enough. Um, 
Well, if that was who's heading up the peace party, you can only imagine who's heading up the war party. It's uh, Patrick Sarsfield. So him and his side figured they could get a better deal by fighting, which is which is usually the probably case. always true. Yes, yeah, al- yes. always the case. Be it in war, be it in contract negotiations in your work, be it in trying to get into a bar and being refused by a bouncer. Fighting is always going to, in the long run, benefit your claim. I cannot tell you how many times, Jason, in my life, I've seen a drunk teenager at 1am shout at a bouncer and just, there's always this moment, which I I love it. There's a a look of realisation comes over the bouncer's face and he says, you know what? You're right, kid. I am a jackass. And then lets them in. Well, usually, usually they'll say, he'll say something like, go get a coffee and come back later. And then if you do go and get a coffee and come back afterwards... They will let you in. Yeah, I've actually... Very few people actually take them off on that yeah. offer, but uh, yeah, it does be, work. Because they're drunk. And they're like, it's, so, yeah. it's so funny if you walk back a half an hour later with a coffee. And my suggestion, bring one for them. They would like that. Yeah, bring an extra one. Bring one for them. Bring one for you. Explain your case. Look, man, I understand now Like we had a bad situation there earlier, but can you see now that I'm just trying to go in? Like, you can actually talk to bouncers. You just cannot oh, yeah. be an idiot. No, I mean, very few people have ever tried it, but I've done it a few times with friends and it's it's pretty... I remember the last time I had to get a coffee, we were trying to get into the workman's, I think, and my friend was quite drunk and the bouncer was like, mate, tie up your shoe because one of his shoelaces was untied and he bent over, untied his other shoe, tied it back up a little bow and then stood up with like such a look of triumphant, like just <laughs> such a look of accomplishment on his face. As if to say, like, your move, Mr. Bouncer, I can tie a knot. Let me into your club. But uh, but in that case, we did. We went and got a coffee and came back with a coffee receipt and we got in. And uh, Not even a coffee. A- you, brought, you brought the receipt back. Yeah, you brought the receipt. You're not supposed, you're not, you don't have to bring the whole coffee back. It's implied that you drank it. Smell my breath. Smell my breath. Yeah. It's... It- no, it, underneath, underneath the buck fast. Yeah, no, behind the, no, yeah, behind the vomit. The, yes, yeah, and the cigarettes. What yeah, other tones yeah, are you getting? Yes, there you go. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I haven't brushed my teeth all week. Sure. Why would I brush them? I'm only going to get them dirty again. Uh, <laughs> so, much like um, everyone in Ireland after half two and the bounces of this country, Sarsfield and Talbot did not get along. As previously established. I don't know where it all started off. They were in exile in the Stuart court together. I, I don't know. They weren't friends. They didn't like each other. I feel like... I think Talbot was quite a bit older than Sarsfield. But who knows. But now they found themselves on either side of the remaining Jacobite forces. One wants to deal. One wants to fight. The whole thing's been decided by Noel Edwards. <laughs> he was there with 20 boxes. Each one of them had a treaty inside of it. Except for one which had a gun. Uh so as we talked about in previous episodes, this whole thing is just the start of the Nine Years' War where Louis XIV is trying to take over Europe. This is just the sort of opening gambit in this battle. So elsewhere in Europe, around about the time of the Battle of the Boyne, on the 1st of July, the French had just defeated the Augsburg Alliance, which is like the Dutch, the English, the Spanish, parts of the Holy Roman Empire, like everyone on the other side against France. The French had just beaten them at Flanders, oh, do you, which was in do you the mean, Spanish Netherlands. Do you mean um, the world? Yeah, pretty much. It's just Fran- it's, I think it's France and the Ottoman Empire against everybody. France had just got a victory in 
Flanders, which at this time was in the Spanish Netherlands, which apparently is part of... I don't know when was the last time you looked at the 16th century map of Europe, but it is very difficult to figure out what's going on. Is Flanders is now part of Belgium, right? Yeah, so... Because you've got Flanders and Wallonia. What's the other... Um... Is that where Waluigi comes from? Uh, no, that's Italian. You racist. No, no. Mofo. Mario was Italian. Waluigi, I think, was Waldonian. That's why they never got along, because of this ancient conflict. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Wario, but... Uh, oh, well, the less said about that devil, the Wa- better. Waluigi would have been the nemesis of uh, of Luigi. Yeah, but listen, my brother's nemesis is my nemesis. You know how the old Italian phrase goes. Your brother's nemesis is Wal Philip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, he's actually pretty sound. Um, but um, if you look at the 16th century map of Europe, nothing looks recognizable really on mainland Europe, apart from France. Everything else is broken into these loads of different provinces. France pretty much looks like France. It does currently. But... um. The Spanish Netherlands is now split into like Belgium, Luxembourg, parts of what we know as the Netherlands, Holland, and then Germany and France. But at the time, it was a bit of land north of France and south of the Dutch Republic that the Spanish owned. Well, mm. so, yeah, I don't know enough about their history because I don't know why they're, why it's not called Holland because I grew up with it being called sure. Holland. And as a soccer team, they were always referenced as Holland. And then the other yeah. day in the office, my boss was telling me about some documentary she was watching that reference, like, uh, it was it, had, I think it was set in, in the Netherlands. But when she had said, she's like, you know, it's set over in Holland. And instantly I went, I don't know if we're allowed to be saying that now. That seems like an old <laughs> term to be. I was like, wait, hold on a second. What am I talking? It's a country that's predominantly like six foot two white people who have a bunch of money. I was like, I'm not being offended for them in any way. Sure, yes. I And I think they only said it recently. And yeah, I, I got confused in what, like the research for this. But then, as we've seen, Jason, this has already gone on five episodes long. I did find myself with like three or four tabs open on the Spanish Empire and the Habsburg Empire and the Dutch Republic. I was like, what are you doing? Get What the fuck yeah. you at? Get back on track. <laughs> I'd gone deep into the weeds again on like, Basically, everything else about the Nine Year War has been cut from this story because it's 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 not relevant. It's too long. It went on for nine years, which is how long this podcast will happen <laughs> unless we stick to the Irish stuff. Oh, could, but, could you believe our like? Imagine our weekly listeners who are like, "Oh, I love this! Uh, every week a new story. Every week a new quick fun story." And then waiting <laughs> for season four, just waiting, just waiting, and then it drops. Hey, month and a half of this. I really like quirky stories. I wonder what happened in Mullingar, maybe, in the 1920s. So in 1671, the Prince of Walesia bespoke of the finance minister from what is currently known as Croatia, but at the time was New Hofskenberg. Now, they were cousins, but also one of them was 14. (laughs) (laughs) That sets the tone for what was going to happen in Northern Macedonia. Now... Remember that guy I told you about seven hours ago? Prince Finsberg? That guy <laughs> comes back into it hard. Actually, sorry, that was a conversation I was having outside of the podcast. Let me fill you in. <laughs> Here's a three-episode tangent. But uh, yeah, I think... So the Netherlands is the sort of... At the time, Holland, I think, was a district in what was the Dutch Republic, which was a bunch of different districts put together, including like Maastricht and Utrecht. And fi- uh, uh, Red Light. And then, yes, the red light was one of the more famous ones. And I, and they, and each district would pick its own stat holder. But most of the time, they'd pick someone from the House of Orange. 
And a lot of the time, each district would pick the same stat holder, so that person would end up becoming a de facto leader of the Dutch Republic, which was what William, Prince of Orange, was. None of that's relevant. What was important was that France had just won a big victory in the Spanish Netherlands, right outside King William's hometown. King Billy had left the defense of his home country to Prince Waldeck. I realize now when I was making fun of this sort of stuff like two seconds ago, this is exactly what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but so King Billy had had to leave the defense of his home Dutch Republic to Prince Waldeck. And Waldeck got badly defeated, lost half the men. And then on the 10th of July, the French Navy defeated the combined Dutch-English Navy at the Battle of Beachy Head. So they temporarily controlled the English Channel, which is a huge deal. And that happened the day before the Battle of the Boyne. I had read in one place that maybe James had, maybe he'd purposely run away from the Battle of the Boyne in order to mount a naval attack on England, which I think is probably the most generous rewriting of history that uh, I've come across (laughs) so far. So all this stuff is happening in mainland Europe on the side of Louis, which essentially the Jacobites are on that side. So everything's going well in general. And also, once King Billy gets into Dublin, he issues the Declaration of Finglas, where he asks for the surrender of Jacobite forces. (laughs) Sorry, it's too good a name. The Declaration of Finglas, read as such. Ah, here! Would you listen to me for a second? The first paragraph was just... Man, trust him with me fucking life, man. With me fucking life. King Billy's a fucking legend. <laughs> but, uh... So he issues the the declaration of Finglas asking for the surrender of Jacobite forces. He basically says that anyone, any of the rank-and-file guys who surrender within, like, the next week, they get off free. They get a pardon. But it's not the same for the officer class. They're all going to be punished. For some reason, like, that made the army not want to surrender that sort of strengthened the jacobite resolve presumably because they were getting fed this information like the rank and file guys were getting fed this information from their bosses ah yeah if it was in modern times that would have just been broadcast on radio or whatever and they would have been able to make up their own minds but presumably they're being read this by their officers (laughs) (laughs) yeah history was real shit before you had like access to the internet and information you know, those cowards, they're offering us a deal. They think we're stupid enough to take it. They say, you can all walk free, and all you have to do is turn over me, your general. Basically, if father to you all. I say we stick it to them, boys. No, no one's getting paid anytime soon. Yes, we're all gonna have to live in a trench, but by God, it will be worth it. It's better than succumbing to those dirty foreign bastards. Yes, I am from France, why do you ask? <laughs> Uh, do you think most of that speech would have been given as he was crowd surfing his way towards the opposition? <laughs> <laughs> He's just being hoisted over a wall <laughs> with a delivered to William sign on him. Um, but yeah, so for some reason, a combination of the harsh surrender terms and the fact that Louis' side is doing pretty good in Europe, which means like there could be reinforcements coming in. There's a possible victory coming for them. These two things lends credence to, like, Sarsfield's war party argument. And so the Jacobites decide to establish a defensive line along the Shannon, and they dig in, and they set up their forces in Limerick. But in early August, General Antoine 
Camont, who I kept calling Camus in the other one because I didn't read his name properly. Mm. But uh, he's the guy who replaced Davo and Conrad von Rosen. He's like, I think at this stage, he's the top French military guy in Ireland. Numero un. He declared the Limerick could have been taken by roasted apples. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he meant that the weapons would have been roasted apples or he could have been taken by literal roasted apples. But uh, he leaves for Galway along with Talbot and a lot of the people on the peace party side. And they all head to France, possibly to get back up, or possibly they just go to France. But they abandon the Jacobite cause temporarily, um, which means that now Sarsfield is pretty much in charge. Which, well, also, when Camont replaced Devaux and Von Rosen, Devaux told him that the Irish were a poor spirited and cowardly people whose soldiers never fight and whose officers will never obey orders. Um, Just wait about 200 years that people of his nation would be eating those words. But also here is, here is uh, Comont doing that exact thing, running off at the, at, at the hour of need. But uh, he is a much cooler guy than Davout. And this is another thing where I went into the weeds on like, this guy is a really fascinating story. He, he's just a sort of general in Ireland, but that was probably not even in the top 10 interesting things about him. Apparently, back when he was in France, he was the only love interest of Henri-Louise d'Orléans, who was described as one of the greatest heiresses of Europe at the time, had a massive fortune and was unmarried and was like turning down proposals from all the royalty of Europe, including Charles II, and all because she'd fallen in love with Comon, who was like a lowly count. As much as as much shit as I'll give the French, like French women, like there is just because they don't want you. You're like, I just want your affection. Give me your affection. And they won't. They won't ever do it. I'm like, I'm putty in their hands. Uh, and I hate it every single moment of it. But damn, French women just have me. Well, this is exactly what's happened. Like, here comes the English king, Charles II. Probably brought over some posies or something to try and woo this woman. And she says, no. She turns down, like, princes and kings from all across Europe. And all because she loves Camon who is a count, and is described as being fascinatingly ugly, which I feel like that's the, the French they always type. are, that they don't care about looks. You know, they care about, like, how much do you hate yourself and how much can you overcome that? I don't know. Like, it's, it's... Which is exactly, if you are, you know, if you're, like, not conventionally attractive but still attractive, nonchalant. It's, I don't know, it's basically, even the word nonchalant, they, they made the whole thing up. Yeah, they've got the sexiest ever way of saying nothing nonchalant just act cool act nonchalant you're like oh my god oh that sounds so sexy nonchalant i can't even be chalant i can't even be i'm not even you're constantly chalant no i can't i'm I'm manic is what i am because i'm not cool enough i'm not suave enough to even say suave let alone chalant let alone be nonchalant they've they've got that certain je ne sais quoi well that's yeah so all the words that we've taken from france like inui Je ne sais quoi, nonchalant. They're all just words to, just to describe the things that we can't be. Yeah. Just this detached coolness that we can't even explain succinctly without stealing their goddamn words for it. <laughs> I'm getting riled up just thinking about it, which is not very cool. It's pure chalant. <laughs> but Charles probably came over like me, all riled up, ready to impress this woman. And she was like, no, I, uh, I love in Odell. 
And she'd fallen for this guy who was, you know, uh, handsomely ugly. But because he is a count, he's seen as being way below her stature. So she has to go to Louis XIV and ask his permission to marry him, which causes a big scandal in the court. But uh, it's just like in all the great love stories, Jason, just like in the movies, love triumphed. And Louis True come on in prison so that she could marry someone of a better stature. So that's the fourth element of the Dan Harriman stories, like... Oh yeah, I thought we were, saying, the... we're just like you said, just like the movies. So I think that's that's a basic st- uh, story structure. That would be your uh, directly after go, I believe, or no, two move after go. It's right before things start to take an upturn. Um, oh, it'll it'll come. No, it doesn't come around. It will. That's the he spends ten years in prison. Yeah, and, and then and, she and, marries someone else, and then and then he comes out and he goes to Ireland to fight, and and then no, they never get married. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Because she's, she's mega rich and he's some weird, ugly but handsome dude. Wait, are you telling me that all of those relationships that I've ended over the years because I'm like, well, this is the this will come around now full circle eventually. <laughs> yes, you'll come back to the same place, but you'll have learned something and you're different. Yeah, if you love something, you're meant to let it go. So yeah. I run out on a load of commitment type situations sure. in the knowledge that then that means in the future, the ones who really like me will come back. Is that, are you telling me that doesn't always work? No, I'm saying that in this story, she asked his permission. Louis says, absolutely not, and puts him into prison. But not just any prison, Jason. A prison Uh, of the heart. A prison of the mind, which is the worst prison. But also there's a prison called Biel Nol, where he's put into, I think, solitary confinement. And then I don't know how much of this is, it basically, it sounds an awful lot like um, the Count of Monte Cristo. It sounds like a delicious sandwich. It does. He he managed to like sneak through a chimney or something, and he starts to like he's able to like get into different cells and get contact with other prisoners. Y- you're including getting, you're getting the Count of Monte Cristo confused with prison break again. Ah, uh, wait, yes. Which is the uh, didn't Al- uh, Alexander Dumas write Prison Break? Yes, it's been a while since we've referenced that. Yes, yeah, I know, and I think our new reference should be uh, I think Lost. I've started watching Lost again during quarantine. Oh boy, am I ever back into Lost? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll hooked. tell you what, I'll I'll catch up on Lost as well, and by season five, it'll be predominantly Lost references. Please do, but um, so he he's rooting around the prison. He manages he meets different prisoners in there, including apparently the the man in the iron mask, Leonardo DiCaprio. The the very same. So yeah, the, the man in the iron mask was a, a prisoner who was kept in solitary confinement for 40 years and always had his face covered and was like moved around different prisons in France. And no one knows who it is, but there's all these rumors, including that he was like Louis XIV's twin brother who would have had a claim to the throne. So Louis had him like kidnapped and kept in solitary or the fact that he might have been, uh, there was another theory that he was Charles II's son uh, who was also like, kept in solitary for some reason so that, that he couldn't that would be a weird one because i feel like the 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 twin brothers type situation yeah that's easily provable look they're identical although mo- not all twins are identical being sure. this, being the son of someone is kind of like any of those girls who've come up to you kevin over the years going look this thing is the spit of you <laughs> sure and you're, you're like good luck getting a strand of my hair run away <laughs> That's why I'm bold by choice. Yeah. Uh, the, the Eddie Murphy solution. Sure. <laughs> it's true that some things change as we get older. 
But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. But, um, yeah, there's a couple of theories that it was a different Charles of Charles, which seems like actually what we were talking about earlier on, the secret pact of Dover, it kind of implies that, like, as part of the deal for them joining up and fighting against the Dutch, as part of the negotiations, Charles was like, I need you to take care of something for me. Uh, I had this son who's illegitimate, you know, we've all been there, hands up. Uh, I don't want that son to come and challenge my rule at any stage, but I'm not a monster. I don't want to kill him. What I want you to do for me is take him to France, put a mask over his face, and just keep him at his side for like mm, 40 to 50 years until he dies. Just give him anything he wants, absolutely anything, apart from any comforts or people to talk to or freedom. Yeah, I mean... It's the, it's the humane thing to do. <laughs> this sounds a lot like Ireland's, uh, how we used to deal with mental health in our country. <laughs> like, it's not so much just the French lords, it's pretty much anyone who was born with any form of a mental yes. disability between the years of any time until now. Yeah, pretty much. What I want you to do is put a mask over this person's face and just keep them locked up. Yeah. In terrible conditions until it just sort of takes care of itself. Uh, there was, yeah, one of the other theories I read was that it was a man called Eustace Dongiel, which uh, I think he has a rival against Titus Oates for best name in this whole thing. But Eustace Dongiel. Yeah, spelt danger. Of course it is. But pronounced Dongiel because he doesn't play by your rules. So... Camont is released from that prison after 10 years. At the whole time, he's, he would have been released if he'd signed some documents to like release some lands or something. And he says, no, not me. I'm staying in here with Eustace Donger. We're having a great time. And then he gets put into a worse prison and he says, you know what? Give me the documents. I don't give a shit. And he moves over to England afterwards to 
join up with like J- the Stuarts court because he'd fought with James in Flanders. And then after James is overthrown by William, Camont helps uh, James's wife and his child escape back to France and he brings them to Louis. Basically, he's kind of always been involved with James's court and then he goes and fights for him in Ireland. But uh, but not anymore. He says Limerick can be taken by a bunch of roasted apples and he, he pieces out. He heads back to France. So on the other side of the aisle, William wanted this war over as quickly as possible because after the beachy head thing where the French temporarily controlled the English Channel, the people in England, they're freaking out. And they're like, William, what the hell are you doing? Get back here. We uh, we went all this trouble of throwing James out, putting you in charge, and now you're over hanging around in bogs, playing with the Irish. We need you back here to defend the good British Straits of Dover. And no one was taking him up on the Fingless Declaration. Why didn't you say cliffs? Uh, I don't know, because they were concerned about the whole thing, the Straits of Dover. They want the whole damn thing. Ah, uh, yeah, but for reference... They want the cliffs, the straits, the beaches, the whole dang thing, Jason. They're after the goddamn machine. I'll tell you, you don't know what the song for this is? It'll be Cliffs of Dover. Yeah, I feel like all the songs for this season have been quite pro-British, so one more will be fine. Um, So no one's taken him up on the Declaration of Finglas. So he gives up waiting and decides to march west, and they arrive in Limerick around the 9th of August of 1690. He's got about 26,000 men with him. He delayed in Dublin for a while, thinking that the Irish would just surrender, which had given the Jacobites a fair amount of time to like do up the defences of Limerick. And they had about 15,000 soldiers inside, as well as a lot of uh, lay people. Are you, and then, are you about to tell me the history of Irish dances at weddings? Oh, yes. Am I getting... Oh, we're getting... This is exactly what's going to happen. <gasps> Amazing. I feel bad that I've ruined it for myself, possibly the listeners, but go on, tell me about yes. these walls and a possible siege. <laughs> um, well, so they've got 15,000 soldiers inside Limerick, and Patrick Sarsfield is somewhere out in Clare with about 2,500 soldiers. Spirits are high, Jason, in the Limerick camp. Even though they've just lost the Battle of the Boyne, they're happy uh, about... Most of the times you'll find the walls of Limerick, there's been a lot of spirits. Like our producer, Dan, who I uh, was at a wedding with him last year, and uh, I gave him uh, a, a touch of the devil's lettuce, and uh, he managed to take his top off and river dance on the dance floor where uh, Leo Varadkar had been there 30 minutes before him. Uh, it, was, it was quite the sight. He was basically Michael Flatley reincarnated. I don't know if he's dead or not yet, but I don't Dan, think he is. But Dan was Dan was so good on that dance floor that I feel like he stripped Flatley of his spirit. I'm sure. Yeah, somewhere at some party, Flatley was temporarily frozen in time. Not even temporarily. I think this is an on-running thing, kind of like a like this is like Space Jam Two, but it's going to be Irish. Are you saying that like set- Flatley's in a coma somewhere? As yes. like Dan has Dan has stolen his spirit. Dan has taken all of his talents. Uh, and oh, the, right, yeah, it's like Space Jam. Yeah, uh, he's he's come over. He's t- he's reappropriated all of his abilities. And just as a as a reference point, Dan has I can't name names, but a former uh, Irish international rugby player, very well known. Uh, our producer bet him in a dance contest on the Workman's Dance Floor in Dublin. Um, it had started as a, a dance off, Dan. On the upper hand, a uh, rugby player has to go, oh, I'll pull something out of the bag to win this. So tries to pull off a handstand, falls over, kicks a girl in the head while doing so. And then, Brilliant. and the only proof we have of it is that uh, that player acknowledged it the next day on Twitter. 
because he had to apologize to that person tweeting at him saying, this person kicked me in the head last <laughs> night. <laughs> so I think anyone with about five minutes uh, and a bit of a detective in them will be able to find that. Oh, well, if that's the case, uh, it was Brian O'Driscoll and he was on yokes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but so even though the Jacobites had just lost the Battle of the Boyne, spirits were high, Jason, because of the victories that Louis had made in France, but also because a man called Baljarig O'Donnell had just returned to Ireland from Spain and been given his own contingent by Tyrconnell. I think he arrived just after the Battle of the Boyne. He'd missed that, but he was barreling down the Shannon on his way to Limerick, and there was an old prophecy that someone of the O'Donnell clan would drive the British out of Ireland permanently at a battle outside of Limerick. So people are looking at the stars and they're saying, this is it. It's all lining up now. Hmm. Like Orion's belt. Exactly like Orion's belt, (laughs) when he'd whip it off to give you a smack around the ear. (laughs) What kind of childhood did you have? (laughs) The kind where I knew not to cross Orion, okay? (laughs) Orion was a tough man. (laughs) He was. Asher, listen, Jason, the beating you got when you talked back was substantially worse than the beating you got if you didn't talk back. So, you know, I learned my lesson. And, uh, so they're all... The people of Limerick are amped up for this prophecy. The O'Donnells are back. They're going to chase the British out of Ireland. It's happening. You're saying the British are Derek doomed? They're Derek doomed, man. It's uh, we're, t- we're taking it from the horse's lips. <laughs> Don't look a gift horse in the lips. So William arrived outside Limerick, ready for the siege. He took up residence in Cromwell's old fort outside of Limerick that had been built 40 years previous for the last siege of Limerick. So it's it's convenient that they left it there. You know, they could just pick up again for round two. William didn't have much in the way of ammo or artillery when he arrived, which, now that I think about it, is actually, that's pretty cocky. I didn't actually realise <laughs> I think he really counted on the fact that they'd surrender by the time he got there. <laughs> so he it's didn't like, bother it's the equivalent bringing much of, with him if I act crazy enough no one will want to fight me so it's just like, yeah. ah, I'll bite you in the face okay don't I'm not going to mess with this guy so he, he had a siege train coming behind him from Dublin but I guess he arrived there like several weeks before that was due to arrive but, but you're, anyway you're, su- such is the problem with your old aired and scheduling that uh, that's <laughs> He was he was standing at Limerick Station looking at the sign saying next siege train in 20 minutes and he was like we got this sorted lads he was chatting to one of his mates he looked back up again and said next siege train in two weeks yeah he said what, what we'll actually do is we'll get you a bus to Athlone and then from Athlone you can get a train in two weeks time <laughs> oh but don't worry we're not going to charge you extra for that bus that's going to take you extra hours to get to your location don't worry about that yeah. we've got that covered it's like it's not an option. It's like, hey, I got to the airport. Don't worry, we'll get you to Spain. You just got to go down to the docks. <laughs> Tell me this. Uh, how are your sea legs? <laughs> well, he was he was standing there for four days. He finally saw a train coming along with a load of cannons on the back of it. And then as it got up to the station, he just said, entering service soon. <laughs> this cannon not in service. Yeah, that. but like not in service, I get. Maybe they're on their way home. The one where it says entering service soon. That breaks my heart. Yeah, let why, me on. Why, don't tease me. Yeah. Don't say I'm almost a bus. You're either a bus or you're not. Don't be like you just fucking missed it, man. <laughs> so close. So, but there is a siege train coming from Dublin with cannons and ammunition and gunpowder, the whole shebang. 
So when our old friend Patrick Sarsfield finds out about this, he takes about 500 Jacobite troops and sneaks out from Clare across the Shannon and over to Ballyneety to try and ambush the siege train. But it turns into a he giant a- mess. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't so needy when they were done with it. But uh, he was apparently led there by Michael Gallopin Hogan, who was a referee <laughs> from <laughs> East Limerick. I feel like you've got a note on Hogan. My name's Michael Gallopin Hogan. <laughs> Gallopin. That was his name. It was not. It was not. No, that was his nickname. Why? I don't know, actually. I imagine it's because he loved ketamine. He had beautiful, long hair. He was afraid of flies. I don't know what's like. What's what's going What's going on? What I don't know. He? he was just, he was fast. I, I don't know. He had... <laughs> Someone said, why the long face? And uh, that was it. Um, but he was one of the rapperies from East Limerick. He was one of the rubber bandits. He was actually one of the original rubber bandits. I'm, that's, how, that's how out of touch I am. I think that that's what you call people who would partake in R&B. Rapperies. It's, it's the plurality of, uh, of a rapper. <laughs> he was one of them rappery fellows. But um, So on, on the night of the 13th of August... They sneak up on the siege train undetected and they manage to blow the whole thing up. Uh, allegedly, Hogan was given the honour of lighting the fuse on the explosives. So this whole like event goes down in Jacobite history. It's like a Jacobite legend. But apparently it was actually quite difficult to destroy those cannons. And six out of the eight cannons ended up being salvaged anyway and used at Limerick. But uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And they did destroy most of the ammunition and the carts. So that was all, like, blown up. It sounds like a good tagline for this podcast. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we talked a bit about the rapperies in one of the other episodes. They were the guys, like, rapperie was from the Irish for Pike. They were the guys who were attacking Schomburg's men, the encampment outside of Dundalk. Yes, yes. I told you about that, about the... I told you about the dude in my school who threw a fish into behind the radiator of the the classroom. No, he didn't. No? Okay. When I was in secondary school, I'd say it must have been transition year, maybe fifth year, uh, there was a was a teacher, I guess she was a sub, but one of the dudes came back from the river on his lunch break with a rotted pike. Whoa. Yeah, he, he had Hang a, on. He took, I, I don't want to interrupt your story already, but like, you can't say he came back from the river as if like he came back from lunch. That's not a normal thing. Not everyone who listens to this podcast grew up in Carlo. Not everyone went to the river that wasn't one of the classes that they have. Yeah, you go down to the river. Maths, English, Spanish, river fishing. No, it's not called river fishing. It's called SPHE, otherwise known as life. <laughs> and it's where you learn how to get away with doing things you don't want to do. It's where you learn how to roll fat joints and take uh, take drags between your hand where it's all covered. So that it covers from the wind uh, like a cool. Sure. Um, it's where you learn how to open a can quietly so people can't hear you. It's where you learn to find that little space beside a lock, you know, like with the lock where no one is. Uh, so you can actually drink and smoke underage and shift girls. Uh, this is these are the things that CSPE and SPHE are meant to teach you. It's S-P-H-E, smoking, fighting, hawking, and education. Uh, yeah, it was the education of all of that, yeah. That's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, the, this this fella came back from... Uh, he went down to the river, I guess, at his lunch. Uh, he came back with a pike on a stick and took her, as he's name, 
uh, and he came back and he on the stick comes up so, now in fairness someone had left the window open I don't know if that's dastardly or if it was just coincidence I think maybe they thought of it in advance but it was he had a man on the inside being you know September October and it being Ireland it's fairly cold so the radiators are on and that radiator is right beside where the giant window is at the back of the class so also I will say that's a classic Irish secondary school move radiators on windows open yeah no sense but it's happening and now there's a pike sat on that radiator for maybe a good day (laughs) yeah yeah that's yeah that's uh, i feel like you have told me this story before but i don't know i don't think it's in this uh it's the worst that was bad although like that's pretty shocking but it's pretty easier like all right we'll close that room we won't use it for a day or two we'll air it out shut It'll the room well ex- we didn't all go to multiplex schools jason where you could just close a room if you close the room in my school everyone was just outside for the rest of the day yeah no you just send them home um <laughs> latchkey kids no the what else was bad was i guess the teachers that like the ones you knew just gave up like somebody was like i became a teacher in my 20s to teach irish because i enjoyed it and then ireland changed like the generations <laughs> changed and it's not fun to be a teacher anymore and no one wants to learn this or even give it a fucking go so then they find themselves being 60 years of age or like 55 and a few years from retirement and the government are about to cut their retirement packages because of yeah. the recession and they're like do i retire now or do i spend the last couple of years making decent money dealing with these absolute pricks we used to take two phones but at the time you could call one against the other, but keep the phones right beside each other, like within the space of a centimeter or two. It would make a weird. It would sound like the intro to a Rage Against the Machine song, and sure. uh, that would just go and go and go and go. But the thing is, you could put two phones together, put them on the, like anywhere you want, and some somewhere else call them. So once you were doing that, you could hide the phones on a metal girder above the classroom. And then just randomly throughout the day, just be doing that. Even if you're not in the class and you're like, eventually those (laughs) teachers just give up. They just give (laughs) up. And then we all turn around and go, it's ridiculous. Do you know what's ridiculous, Kevin? The fact that I had to study Irish for 13 or 14 years and I can't speak any of it. Do you know what it is? It's the (laughs) system's fault. It's how they teach it. It's the system's (laughs) fault. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no. Every, that's a fine. Every that's a fine single. Take. Every single child in Ireland is a shithead, and they don't want to learn the language because you're given multiple opportunities to do it, and then you find yeah. yourself being 27 downloading Duolingo and like, like begging all of your friends, "Will someone do this with me so I can have a conversation once a week?" And nobody will. Nobody will. I asked you that once, and you could have just said a simple no. There's no need to hang me out to dry like this. But you're <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. I, uh, I down- downloaded Duolingo. I was like, this is my chance. Those 14 years where I had an opportunity to do it, it didn't stick. Not through any fault of my own. It was the system's fault. And now I've downloaded an app and it still doesn't stick because I, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, we t- we talked about the Pike Men a little bit in one of the episodes, but uh, I didn't go into where they came from. So initially, when when James was going to come over and land in Ireland for his glorious return to the throne, Talbot wanted to raise an army for him, so we instructed each locality to get together a band of troops. But when James landed, it turned out that there wasn't enough of that sweet, sweet French money to actually go around. So a lot of the contingents weren't going to get paid, 
but they ended up because it was in their best interest to fight anyway because they'd end up with land a lot of them formed bands called the Rapparees so they're essentially like outlaws but there were there were some early guerrilla forces starting off a uh, um or not even starting off, but continuing a fine tradition of guerrilla forces but in the, Ireland. The rapparees and the guerrilla forces. Are you talking about De La Soul? I am, exactly. I'm glad you saw where this was going. But um, So there's like stories about how they would just put their pikes in bogs and then blend in with the town people as the British army passed through. And then as soon as they were gone, up come the pikes again. But before the rapparees, there was a group called the Tories during the Cromwell years, uh, coming from the Irish word... Tory, meaning pursuer. They were pretty well known, fairly notorious. They were notoriously B.I.G. And as we covered in the Glorious Revolution episode, James kept disbanding the Parliament in order to try and get his religious freedom laws through, and it resulted in the constitutional crisis, which brought about the formation of a two-party system where you had the anti-James Whig party on one side, and then on the other pro-James side, that group was called the Tories, after this group of Irish guerrilla forces as a kind of insult because they were seen as being like pro-Catholic. So the modern Tory party that they have in England today got their name from a guerrilla force in Ireland in the Cromwell years. Wow. So it was initially thrown out as an insult. I'd still use it as an insult. Well, yeah, but it's still used as an insult today. But And then I was trying to like, it'd be the same as if now Jeremy Corbyn started his own split-off labour group and he came up with some name for it, but everyone just called him the IRA as a dig. And then after about five years, the IRA just stuck as the name. And that's what we know it as 200 years later. And I kind of wrote that as like, this is how crazy an idea this is. And then as soon as I finished, it's like, that's exactly what would happen. That yeah. uh, If Jeremy Corbyn starts his own political party in the next couple of years, they will be called the IRA. <laughs> or the RA for short. And then in 100 years, there'll be another podcast where two guys are like, and you know, actually, the Ra Party, who are currently in power, they got their name from a little lone guerrilla warfare group in uh, a country called Ireland, who used to be the Irish Republican Army. Back when it was only two countries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Before the great Westmead-Mead divide of uh, 2024. <laughs> or actually, in more cur- uh, like as of be- yesterday, the Leishoffily Kildare. <laughs> Schism. Yes, I'm recording them off. I thought, to be honest, if I was, if any county was going to try to secede, I feel like it would be Cork. It would be. Frankly, every day I wake up and Cork is still a part of Ireland is a, it's a shock. But so after the ambush, Gallop and Hogan and Sarsfield, they managed to sneak back into Limerick, and spirits are high, Jason. They've just destroyed William's siege train coming in. Things are looking up for the boys. But you can't keep a good man down, and King Billy just ordered another siege train from Waterford, and it arrives on the 27th of August, and they start battering the walls of Limerick. So by the afternoon of the 27th, a giant there's a giant hole in the wall uh, around Limerick, and thousands of Williamite soldiers start storming in through the deep. This is the breach of Helm's Deep. I was, I, you, did you know that's exactly where I was going? This is like, in my mind, I the second know. you started talking about this, I'm like, the Urukai leader is running towards like the pit with the with the gunpowder. There's an elf yes. shooting yeah, like arrows at him. God, Kevin, I, you know how to paint a picture in my head. I do. Just this a, is a, a, a slight reference to, to the one movie I've seen. <laughs> Only the second one, not the other two. You don't need it. You can get the rest through context. They brought the ring back to the to the Shire, yeah? I think so. They said, you know what? It seems like these forces are very strong and they really want this thing. Let's bring it back to Hayden. They finally defeated the evil Bilbo Baggins and then something else happened. I'm not sure. 
But uh, so the Willemite forces, they get through the breach, but they're met by all these ramped up, jacked up bites, ready to fight to the last man. They're firing their muskets at the holes, chucking grenades. Apparently, even the citizens, like the, the non-soldiers in the city are looking down. They figure things are not going to go well for them if the Williamite forces win. So they join in the fight. They're apparently every man and woman in the place is chucking stones down at the Williamites coming through the holes. They're just picking up pitchforks and stuff. They're arming themselves with whatever's around and fighting the forces back. And apparently this goes on for like four hours until eventually the Williamites had to yield. And they moved back from the wall after losing about 3,000 men. Ooh, worse than the Battle of the Boyne. This is worse than the Battle of the Boyne. And this is like, this is the Jacobites' last stand, uh, kind of. Not not really, I guess they've still got other places around the country. There's still contingents in like Cork, Galway, Sligo. But this is their main force. And they've just fought William to a standstill. They've, they've pushed him back. Do, do you know what I've just realised? That might make no sense. Just when you were staying there last stand, this is how my mind works. It went, uh, I should stop listening to this incredibly important informa- piece of information that Kevin's trying to give me now so I can follow this podcast and finally finish it. My brain went to, do you remember uh, Mondo from Fair City? Was he the giant gingerbread man from Shrek? No, he's George McMahon, the, the actor. But his big thing was Custer's last stand. Which is what I remember. Yeah. Do you remember that? The lead from that is Mondo from Fair City. It was his big break after Fair City, I oh. believe. Uh, or maybe concurrently. But Custer's Last Stand was a TV show set in Ireland where there was a young lad who grew up wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Oh. He was from Belfast and it's, his best friend is that um, funny-looking fella from Man About Dog. But yeah, it's his rise to becoming a, a young comedian in Ireland. Uh, I remember seeing that as a kid and going like, oh, that's, that's very good. And it's obviously in reference to Custer's last stand as to like General Custer. But that reference shouldn't have made sense to me as a child. I was just going to say, like, why were you such, why were you as a child so educated on the Wild West? I don't know. But then like in hindsight. Me as a child would have seen that and been like, oh, yes, he obviously hates Custard or yeah. he loves Custard. He feels strongly about Custard somewhere. Either way, this is the last time he'll have it. Yes. But thinking back now, I don't know how I always knew that, even as a kid, but also never thought, like, this is a terrible name for a show because no one's going to get this. This is a show that's made for children about, a, like, a guy doing stand-up comedy. Like, this is a, this is not... It has Wait, no, why was it made for children? I thought it was a, it was a British children's television series. Children shouldn't be exposed to that level of desperation and neediness, as you would see... In a stand-up comedian's rise to mediocrity. Two seasons, 13 episodes. I say we... The spin- good British way. Spin-off podcast. Shy talk, Custer's last stand. Custer's but penultimate stand. I think... in Yeah, but I was in, in hindsight. I got that reference. I shouldn't have. Nobody else who was watching that show would have got that reference. So why was it called that? It had nothing to do... Loads of people would. It's a very famous battle and or but it has stand. Not- but it has nothing to do with a do like a kid in Northern Ireland trying to be a stand-up comedian. It's just was the his fact name that custard. I don't believe so. I don't know. I'd have to go back. I feel like that's a pretty crucial piece of information. Yeah, but I, it, you're ta- you're listening to the wrong podcast, Kevin. If you're trying to come here for information, <laughs> although if the comedian, if the guy's name in real life wasn't Custer, it just means that he invented a character's name around this concept of Custer's last stand. 
I think he came up with it. He was like, this would be a good show name. And they're like, oh, so what is it about? Uh, oh, we can't make a show about custard. Uh, last, <laughs> la- last is a bad thing because we might get cancelled too early. Um, stand so stand up comedy is it? Is it managing stand up comedy? Yes, that works. Is it that silly looking fella from Fair City? Yes. Okay. Well, he'll. Perfect. I've I've a feeling his schedule will be wide open. Um, was it that 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 the character's name was Custer? It was Jamie Custer? Of course, his name was Custer. That's the but whole just, point of just, the title. That's crazy. That's crazy. That is crazy. That does mean that like the actor came up with that name or the director or someone involved with the project was like thought of that pun and then named a character Custer so that he could make a show called Custer's Last Stand. <laughs> that is ludicrous, but also it is the exact sort of thing that I would do. You want to write a TV show called Twin a Skeen just because you think that the term <laughs> twin and in a skein are fun together. It's 100% the same thing. I thought of the idea twin a skein and then I thought, what would that mean? And yeah. it worked backwards from yeah. there. Yeah. It's a twin you, you didn't, who lives in in a skein. You, you barely thought back from there. You sent me a message going, so I thought of this thing. It's twin a skein. It's about two, <laughs> it's, it's two brothers who are twins that live in in a skein. <laughs> you, you left that with me. I'm the big ideas man, okay? I'm the guy who'd walk into a room and say, I've got an idea for a show. Custer's Last Stand. And the guy's name is Custer. And then the network would say, interesting, what is it about? And by that stage, I would have already left. Yeah, you caught... G- Jason, time to shine. What if he's a stand-up? I don't care. I don't give a shit. I've already got my money in the bank. The project's greenlit. Whatever you want. Two seasons, 13 episodes? Fine. <laughs> uh, well, this is not Custer's Last Stand. But it is... This is the end of William's part. Uh, it's just the 31st of August at this stage... William gives the order to retreat back from Limerick across the Shannon and he decides to leave. He goes back to England and then on to like the wars in Europe, which again, we've referenced the nine year war a lot in this series, but it's this like huge, giant, all encompassing battle across Europe. And while all of his troops and men are fighting against the French all across Europe, he's in rainy Limerick fighting against a load of Jacobites who just want their fields back. Yeah. Not to downplay what was happening in the War of the Two Kings, but you can understand where like the rest of his generals in mainland Europe are like, and where are you again? Uh, we're here in the front lines in Flanders, and you're in the Limerick? Yes, but Kevin, I have lived in important places, times, when great events were decided. Who owned that <laughs> half rood of rock? And then Homer's ghost appeared to me and said, I made the odyssey of such local things. Don't you... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say my hometown man, but... Um... Uh, <laughs> I never get to... You, you cut me off before I got to say, because usually I would just say, Bally Russian Gordon, and then someone would go, sure. what do you mean by that? I'm like, oh, hold on a second. You've never read Patrick Kavanagh's epic. <laughs> what year did you even do the leaving cert? <laughs> Which was actually... That was uh, one of the titles of one of the other episodes. What year did you even do the leaving cert? No, Bally Rush and Gort. <laughs> yeah, Gortson. Yeah. But um, for Williams' people back uh, in the Dutch Republic, as far as they saw, it was like a tactical move. He went off to dethrone James. They thought, that's great. That means the English are going to be on our side in the wars to come. And now all of a sudden, it's like two years later, and he's in some place called Limerick fighting against somebody called the Jacobites in order to like get better land rights for Protestants in Ulster. 
Meanwhile, they're having to fight off like Louis' main forces and the rest of Europe. At this stage, they want him back. So he hands over the efforts in Ireland to a man called Godert de Ginkel. Which is, comparatively to the rest of the names of this podcast series, a big ball of shite. Oh, come on. It's better than Neil McNeil and James Fitzjames. Godert de Ginkel? I love it. No. James. Okay. James to James. Well, anyway, listen. De Ginkel is now in charge of, uh, of, of the Operation Ireland. The people inside the Limerick, they just fought off the William White forces, especially after the Battle of the Boyne defeat. This is a huge win for the lads. But in September of that year, Cork was then captured by John Churchill, uh, which is the name. I think we talked about him before. He was one of James's top dogs. And then immediately, as soon as William landed in England, John Churchill defected over. Uh, his dad was also called Winston Churchill. I had a feeling. Is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Churchill's wife, Sarah, was Dick Talbot's wife's sister. So Churchill's wife and Talbot's wife, they were sisters. Like, is it, I wish we lived in a society like that still. Well, but also John's John's sister, Arabella Churchill, which is a great name, was James Fitzjames's mother. She was James's mistress. Ah, yes, Arabella. She's uh, she's made of outer space, and her lips are like the galaxy's edge, and her kiss the color of a constellation falling into place. Is that the same one? That is, if uh, if I don't find a better option, that Arabella song is going to be the intro song for this episode. <laughs> so I guess this is just one example of how incestuous this whole thing was. That uh, Churchill and Talbot's wives were uh, sisters, and then Churchill's sister was James's mistress. Churchill's sister was also his wife, <laughs> who was actually Talbot's mother and goddaughter at the same time. She was also the neighbour and... The local mayor. And the butler. But, um... In the conservatory with an axe. <laughs> um, but you also got to think maybe that was part of the reason why Churchill had abandoned. I don't know what the system was back then, but like... So Arabella Churchill was the mother of four of James's children. So at that stage, it's not like... I guess I kind of had this idea that the mistresses would sort of be a one-night stand sort of thing, and then you'd accidentally get one pregnant, and you'd be like, okay, all right, I'll take care of you. I can't give him my name, but he'd be James with James. But he had four children with her. At that stage, it's like a steady thing. And she's the sister of one of his main... Fool me once, shame on you. Sure, yes. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three (laughs) times, ah, here, come on. Fool me four times, I should really start wrapping it up. It's time for a revolution. Yeah, fourth time's the charm. So with Dick Talbot in France, Sarsfield had taken control of the Jacobite forces and in December he consolidated his control. He arrested several members of the peace faction, mostly French officers, which in terms of optics is never good, I guess, if you're arresting members of the peace faction. Yeah, but also the, like calling yourself a, the peace faction, is uh, it's a bit, come on now, that's ridiculous. Like, faction isn't it? Like, that's known for being faction fighting. Like, that's what a faction is, a group of people that fight. You cannot call yourself a peaceful faction. Sure. So, Sars was in charge. He went over James II's head and he asked Louis XIV directly for provisions for the siege. He asked for direct provision. He asked for direct provision, the hottest asylum system of 1690. 
He was like, it's just, it's temporary. We'll set it up now. Things will get better in the future. I swear to God, by 25 years time, people will not still be living in these situations. It's only, it's a temporary measure. So he goes over at James's head and he asks for provisions directly. And then while he's at it, he asks Louis to get rid of Talbot and also James Fitzjames. So Talbot at this time is in France. And James Fitzjames's dad, James II, is also in France. Oh, so it's kind of like um, the Lonely Island. How do you mean? <laughs> Stop those two guys. Because it's just Andy Samberg. He's Andy, he's Andy Samberg in them. Yeah. But in January of the next year, 1691, Talbot returns. Old fighting dick returns victorious. He comes up the Shannon with three ships full of provisions, weapons and cash. Which I guess are also provisions, but... Taking the term, just throw money at it, very literal. Oh yeah, yeah like every ship that comes over here just throws money at it. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you've you've taken that to be the literal context. No, we meant buy more ammunition and guns. No, I'm going to chuck a load of coins at them. It's called gun money, Jason. You put it in a cannon, you fire it at the enemy. Uh, ka-ching. But um, James had also sent a letter over with Talbot, making Patrick Sarsfield the Earl of Lucan. Matthew Talon. <laughs> yeah, Matthew Talon is the current Earl of Lucan. But uh, this was an attempt by James to, like, Calm Sarsfield down. Give him a little something, you know. Just get him to cool the jets. I don't think he had the power to do this whatsoever. Like, this is... So James is in exile. The the Jacobite forces are on the verge of defeat. And James is like, you know what? Hey, how would you like to be the king of made-up town? Yes, always. I'd, I'd revel in it. <laughs> you're there. You're besieged by the enemy on all sides. You're after writing an angry letter to Louis, being like, get rid of these two jokers. Put me in charge. I'm here on the ground. I'm going to bring this home for you. And then you get another letter from that side being like, hey, how would you like to be the mayor of Kilkenny? What about that? Or the president of Belfast? Hmm. Well, yeah, that, that's, it's my like dream job. I want, I want a title. I want uh, an ostensible role of authority. But most of the pressure is kind of taken off me. I don't really have much to say, but it's more of like a, I just walk around a bit, like tapping, tapping people on shoulders with swords. And uh, sure. and saying things like, um, let it begin, commence. <laughs> I don't know what kings do, but things like that. I just want to, once a week, sure. I would just want to bellow something. I never get to bellow anything. Well, I, I suppose Sarsfield had been, initially at the start of this story, he was trying to like get the lands and Lucan back. Those were his ancestral lands. Do you mean his ancestral lands? His ancestral lands, exactly. Um, and then again in May... Louis sent over another contingent of ships. He's really sending good money after bad at this stage, but he sends more troops down, money and men, provisions, as well as a new commander for the forces, the Marquis of Saint-Ruth. Oh. So at this stage, Talbot's back, and him and Sarsfield are at odds again. Both of them want to take command of the troops, and Louis says, what about this third guy? He can be in charge. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. No, it's most of the time now, you kind of realize when you have an idea of what might happen in history, when it, you know when it's a two-choice option like A or B, what's it, always be prepared for secret option C. Yeah, but the trouble is, if you're always prepared for secret option C, there's a secret option D that you're not prepared for. Mm-hmm. But um, once again, the war takes a break for the winter. At this time, I suppose at any time, but at this time especially, it's very difficult to feed and move troops during the winter. So they kind of go into a hiatus. Like we saw... With Schomburg in Ulster that time, they kind of just shut down after September and make camp for the season. And the same again after the Battle of the Boyne. After in September, October, 
everything just has to like be done until the following year. Whereas I, I would have played it like golf, where you're kind of like, it's a gentleman's agreement. This is where the ball was. This is where we'll play from. I would have sent everyone home for six months, come back when yeah. the weather's better. We will pick this up from where it is. Now, there's no need for all of us to stay here for six months. That's pretty much what's happened. I mean, it's very much a gentleman's agreement where they're like, we're not going to, okay, listen, it's cold outside. We're not animals. So everyone just take a long five. We'll hibernate for a couple of months. Five we'll months. meet you back here next year. <laughs> yeah, that's the origins of the tight five. And just like the ginkle, we'll have to leave it there for this episode because this is ran on. It's now looking like it's going to be a six part thing. But um, we'll leave it there for this week and we'll pick up the last part of it for real this time because it's all recorded now. We'll pick up the last part of it next week. Yeah. See you all then. Good luck. All right. Good luck. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 